Good evening. Tonight we're continuing the series of parables that uh, relate to the, in some senses, the complex parables that at first sight don't seem to be very clear. Um, for some of us, that may be all of the parables. For others of us, just a selection of them. Last week, Gavin unpacked the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and as one key to hearing that parable properly, he showed how important how important it is to understand the Jewish background of the parables. He showed that we need to the usual need to understand the usual roles and relationships between Pharisees. Levites and Samaritans, for instance, if we want to hear the message of that parable well. In recent years, uh, in biblical studies, there's been a new surge of Jewish and Christian studies stressing the importance of understanding this Jewish background of the New Testament. Indeed, the similarity of some of some Jewish teachers in Jesus' time to what Jesus himself was teaching. One important driver of this new interest of, in Jewish studies in the West has, of course, been the realization of the horrific atrocities that the people of Israel or of Jewish background um, faced during the Holocaust of the World War II. Most Westerners feel a sense of guilt and shame about the way Jews were treated before the establishment of the new state of Israel in 1948. And we've all felt something of a similar horror after the atrocities of the Gaza Strip this past fortnight. As Christians, we need to think clearly about how we should react and respond to these sort of situations, both in our reading of Scripture and in our attitude to the events in Palestine and Israel. Not all Palestinians, of course, support Hamas. While on the staff of the Bible College of New Zealand, or Laidlaw College as it is now, um, I had the privilege of working with a member of the staff of the Bethlehem Bible Institute in Bethlehem in Palestine, or Israel. That Bible school is staffed mainly by Palestinian Christians, and it trains Palestinian Christians for church leadership positions in Palestine. All of those students are keen Christians, eager to serve the Lord and to give their time and their devotion to him. Some of them have had a really hard time since Israel established the new state of Israel in 1948 and have been thrown out of their land and their homes um, and suffered considerably under the, the policy of the way land is acquired in Israel at present. While we were in Bethlehem, or while the particular student I'm thinking of was in Palestine Bible College with us in Auckland, in New Zealand, um, he <coughs> was writing, or he was doing the, putting the finished, finishing touches on a book about the growth of the <coughs> Bethlehem Bible College, and it had a whole history of the people of Palestine since the last part of the 19th or the 18th century and um, right through to today. And it was very interesting reading his perception and the 
way in which as a Palestinian Christian he saw the problems and the issues in Palestine in the book he was writing. Just about three years before he came to us, we had another student at the college who had spent a good bit of his life in Israel working with Israeli Christians and training and teaching them so they could go and serve the Lord in Israel and um, help them in the work that they were doing. He also had written a book um, entitled For the Love of Zion and in that book he told the history also of the same period of time from the late 1870s through to today. The two books could hardly be different and yet both of the writers were keen Christians both serving the Lord, both wanting to know more and more about him. It's easy for us as Christians in nice, safe Australia or New Zealand for that matter um, to think that it's easy for us to make our mind up about what's happening over there and what should be done and to take sides in this kind of issue. But some of these issues are so deep-seated and so long-lasting that it's pretty difficult to see how they can ever be solved, certainly by the way in which we would have them go about it. And as Christians today, um, <clears throat> we need to try to understand these things without prejudging them and without assuming that our way of approaching them is the right or the only way to do so. Um, I hope we are all praying and praying earnestly for what's going on in the Gaza Strip and Israel at the moment because definitely it's only in the hand of God that we can see answers. And in a sense, this problem of who do you listen to and who do you turn to to find how to understand a portion of scripture, um, and why is it there are so many different understandings and approaches to them, is what we are talking about when we talk about the parables and what we're looking at tonight. The parables that we find in the New Testament were all written about events happening in Palestine, Israel and Jesus' die, day, but they were not all spoken as the parable of the Good Samaritan was to a general Jewish audience. Some were directed straight at the, the national leaders, the chief priests and the, the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. Several were spoken directly to the Pharisees and, and to the teachers of the law. But some, like our parable tonight, were spoken directly to the Christian disciples, those followers of Jesus who had made a commitment to him. And with these parables especially, it's difficult sometimes to find understanding or right way to think about them if we just simply turn to Jewish sources because Jesus is distinctly speaking about things or points at which he differed from that which was their heritage and tradition. And so we often have to try to find, not from certainly the other Christian, uh, the other Jewish writings can help us tremendously with understanding the geography, the customs, the background, and what's going on around the parables. But often to understand the parable itself, we have to go straight to Jesus' own teaching in other parts of the New Testament. We'll see that's true in what we're looking at tonight. Right, let's look at our parable. We're turning to the parable of the fair and generous landowner, as we call it, in Matthew 
19, the last verse of Matthew 19, and moving through to chapter 20 of, the, of this book. And that is what I'm saying. We're starting at chapter 19, verse 30, because although in our Bibles it's the last verse of a, of a chapter, in the way the Bible was first written, there were no verse or chapter divisions. They weren't introduced until about the 11th century AD. And so we do often need to think about what comes immediately before a part of Scripture if we want to see it clearly and get its meaning correct. So let's pick it up from um, the last section of chapter 19 and we'll read from there. Just the last verse of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his supervisor, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at five in the afternoon, the last ones just been hired for one hour, he says, <clears throat> The workers were paid for, uh, who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received one denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, you notice some of the points in there? Let's unpack it and quickly, I hope. Let's have a look at what he's saying here. To understand this, we really need to get what's going on at the end of chapter 19. And so let's start by looking first at the background setting. Peter had asked a question of Jesus, a question about rewards for service offered. Um, Jesus has, in fact, just shocked his disciples because he's explained to them that it's very hard 
for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that was shocking to them. It's not shocking to us because you've heard it so often we know what it's all about. But in their day, the disciples, since they can remember as younger people, they'd all been taught that if you have riches, you are being blessed by God. Only those who are in God's good books get plenty of income like that, and so these rich people must be specially honoured and specially good in the sight of God. Jesus comes and says, they will find it as hard as it can ever be for them to get into the kingdom of God. And Peter, in response, says, well, then what about us? What are we going to find? What reward are we going to get? It's something of a reaction, but it's a pretty natural one. And Jesus says in the last part of chapter 19, a number of things. We'll just mention them quickly um, and try and make them clear, but I hope. <clears throat> First he said, he stressed that <clears throat> the rich person will find it very hard because their expensive tastes and food and drink and lifestyles and regular pleasures leave little time for God and his worship. It takes special help from God for a rich person to enter the kingdom. The disciples are astounded and Peter verbalises their thought with that question he asked in verse 17, 27, is it? 27. Um, <clears throat> We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus repli replies by declaring, but not explaining very fully, that three things. The disciples will share his rule over the 12 tribes of Israel when all things are renewed at his return. Secondly, that whatever they have given up for his sake will be restored to them a hundredfold and they will inherit, and then thirdly, they will inherit eternal life. Now each of those things we could spend a lot of time unpacking, but basically he's saying there are things to look forward to and these are the real hopes, the real reward for being... Uh, <laughs> entering a Christian life and standing steady and going on in, in it. But then Jesus concludes that block of teaching with those rather mystifying words in verse 30 of chapter 19, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now you recognise those words but we've got to wait till we get to the end of the next story before we have them explained a little bit or we find them re recorded again. Jesus then goes straight into the parable that we're looking at in detail tonight. It says in chapter 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he goes on and speaks about it. <coughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Jesus is not meaning, all right, the kingdom of heaven is like this landowner, so much as many, it's like the situation that's going on when the landowner um, speaks to the different people he employs. <clears throat> the parable is obviously then going to teach us about lessons that we can get by looking carefully at the lives of these people. From verse 2, we enter into the plot of the story and we're told about the people involved. 
And if we want to use the usual way of splitting up a, a play or some presentation, well, then we have Act 1 in some detail. The early rising landowner goes to the marketplace. That's the usual place where you go to hire temporary workers. You find day workers usually went to the marketplace and here early in the morning means literally it says at dawn, so it's probably six o'clock in the morning. There are already keen people there waiting to be employed, hoping to get a day's wages because basically at that time in Palestine, unless they went and worked every day, they wouldn't have enough for their family to live on. A denarius, a Roman coin, um, one metal silver coin, um, was just enough for a reasonable sized family to survive on, but it wasn't enough to hoard any money or to make any fortune out of. So he, the early rising landowner goes and he transacts, transacts business with those who are standing around waiting to be employed and he hires workers for his vineyard and he agrees with them on the regular wage for a day's work. And that's what the denarius was. It was enough for them to work, to look after a family for a day um, and it was the, the regular wage of that time for the day. It's what a soldier got for his employment for a day. It's what they, a good worker could expect to get as well. So with the wages settled, the landowner sends him into his vineyard. Right then, the next act, Acts 2, Acts 3 and Acts 5 actually are all pretty similar. That was at 6 o'clock in the morning. At 9 o'clock, the landowner returns to the marketplace again. He sees other day labourers standing around doing nothing and sends them, them into his vineyard and he promises a proper pay for the work they will do in the vineyard. Now, they would understand a proper pay as a proportion of a denarius for basically the time from nine in the morning when they started till six o'clock at night. At lunchtime, at 12 o'clock, the landowner returns. At three o'clock in the afternoon, he returns. And at five o'clock, he comes back and does the same thing on each occasion. So he's got more and more workers going out for his, going back to his vineyard doing the harvesting of the, um, <clears throat> the grapes that he needs for his work. <clears throat> with the last group who goes, he actually asks, enters into a dialogue with him, asks, why are you still standing here? Why have you, have you, why have you been doing nothing all day? It's not quite as, as sort of critical as it sounds in, in, to us if he's just being friendly rather than judging them for it. And they basically said, well, we need nobody, uh, nobody engaged us, nobody employed us, that's all. So he gives them work to do. But he then um, comes to the final act in, at six o'clock at night and he calls his supervisor, um, foreman of the, the workers, to come and to go out and to pay them He's to start with the ones he employed just one hour beforehand at five o'clock and then he's to work back through each of the groups to the aspect to those who've been there for the whole day. He's to pay them the same wage, one denarius each, 
the normal pay for a full day's work is to be paid to each of them. Well, when he does this, those who are taken on at 6 a.m. in the morning, the first group, they start to grumble against the landowner and they have three complaints, basically. He says, you've made these people who only work one hour equal with, with us. <coughs> they, were, they had seen what the people who had been just working for the one hour received when they were paid. As soon as they saw that, of course, their hopes were built up and they thought, all right, we will get more than that. They expected a bonus. And it was something of a shock and indeed cause for a real grumble when they didn't. We've borne the heat and the burden of the whole day, they say. We've been at work properly, like a good worker ought to be. We're the ones you can trust and depend on, and here you're not giving us a proper, re, 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 proper income back in place of what we've done. But that is what the landowner says. He speaks to one of them, and he reminds that one that he's not being unfair in any way. He had paid what they had agreed to, and so he says you ought to take that and go. Now this is a bit different from the word we're used to, isn't it? We're used to a graduated pay scale, um, and we assume that if we do more work, we'll get higher pay for it. And we've got trade unions and everything else to back us up in that, and to make sure that we get our fair deal, as we call it. Well, there were no such trades union in those days, and what the person is doing is perfectly normal in his society. He's reminding us that in this case, they had no other source of income, they had no other way of getting any income, in fact, and unless he'd been generous to them, they wouldn't have had even that one denarius. And to grizzle and complain because somebody else has received something more is a strange way to act when someone has actually given you what you would normally need for the day. But he's challenging them to think again about their attitude. And he's coming up with a new way of thinking about pay for work done and response to what has been done for us by someone else in giving us work in the first place. <clears throat> when he works all the way through, he then points out to them that he's, although he's given them the one, the one denarius, he's actually paid them sufficient for the day. But he goes on and he reminds them he's not only not been unfair, he has paid what he agreed to, but he had the right surely, to do what he pleased with his own money. It's all his money. Surely he can do what he likes with it. We live in a society that thinks we can tell our bosses or the people we work with or for that we know the best way they ought to use all that they earn, all that they receive. Here the landowner is quite concerned because others think that they have the right to tell him what to do. And he's quietly and softly reminding them that isn't the case and certainly not in their society. And then he goes to the third step and he says, they were being envious of him and all he's trying to do is to be generous towards those who had special need. And 
the actual words he uses here, he actually says, you've got, <coughs> you are showing an evil eye. It speaks about having an evil eye. And that was understood as the, the sign of being niggardly, of not wanting to give people a fair go. And so he challenges them on those three things. And then he comes back to that saying at the end of verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first will be last. He repeats the closing words of the previous section, but he does it in reverse this time, confirming that this parable belongs with the teaching at the end of chapter 19. Dealing with that one first, in other words, he's pointing out that this saying, he's quoting a saying, so the first shall be last and the last shall be first, cuts two ways. In chapter 19, the end of chapter 19, it's an encouragement to people who were scared of missing out and who thought that they were giving something up and who were being hard done by by the things they had given to serve Christ. There, it was offered as an encouragement to them to realise that God's no one's better. He will care for them properly and encourage them. Here, it's given more as a warning to make sure that they don't expect to go and claim things which actually don't belong to him. So we can draw a few lessons from this. Verse 13. God is no man or woman's debtor. He's always just and fair, and God always and only repays with mercy and grace. Jesus tells the parable because there is an important sense in which God is like this landowner. He cares for people, but he chooses the way in which he does it. The reality is that not one of us as human beings deserve what God gives any of us. None of us has worked well enough to earn our way into the kingdom of God. Every one of us are in debt to the grace and the goodness of God and therefore it's not our place to tell God how he ought to distribute that grace and that generosity. We owe him for he owes us nothing but in his generosity, he still gives us all that we need. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were opposed to God, resisting him, running from him, standing over against him, he reached out and made it possible for us to come to him. And we can't complain against him that generosity. In the next verse, he says, verse 14 and 15, God is always free and sovereign in dispersing his gifts. While he offers every believer his free forgiveness, God also allocates gifts and rewards for love and service shown according to his own sovereign purposes. There's no place for jealousy or pride when we stand before him. The evil eye of jealousy that the first employed people were showing can never take the place of joy and rejoicing at another person's gift received from God. God has a right to allocate his 
good gifts to others as he pleases. And we ought to stop being jealous, stop wanting something better for ourselves as if we have some kind of right to it and acknowledge that we're desperately in need as well. And then thirdly, in the next verses, verse 15, God's generosity is not dependent on and is not determined by the extent of our obedience or productivity. He gives as he chooses and in accordance with his own standards of omniscience, all-knowing, of love and of perfection. He doesn't work by trade union rules. And we need to try to come to terms with this in understanding who God is and how we relate to him. Whatever he gives to us is way beyond anything we deserve. And it's important to have the kind of humility that is open to his gifts and realises what those gifts actually are and then says thank you for them, not grizzling or grumbling against what he gives. And so his final summary, of the closing summary in Jesus' words in verse 16, the words that had given encouragement to those who had given up much to follow Jesus in the preceding section in chapter 19, are now repeated to warn against seeking or expecting special privileges for basic obedience. When we've done our duty, we've only done what was expected. That's what this parable is reminding us of. Pride and boasting have no place in Christ's service. Like jealousy, these are all too common as temptations faced by Christians. Those who are raised from lowly positions to be in key roles all too quickly forget their beginnings to become tyrants over those under their control. But the, the law of reversals works two ways. The law of reversal, which is at the heart of the, the message of the gospel, that those who have nothing receive much in the presence of God, remind us that when we are humble and honest about our need, God makes fantastic provision for each of us. But here it also reminds us that when we think we have some right to more than what we've been given, then we ought to pause, think, and remember what we, where we've come from, what we have received, and what God has done to give us what we've received. Hence this <coughs> reversal of expectation from the norm, which makes us an unusual parable, but also challenges us at the heart of our very personal lives. I wonder where we're at. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, 42 to 45, it says, Jesus called all the disciples together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I wish to hold up in the pattern of religiosity that assumes that it's the good things I can do and the better things that I can do than what others are doing, or the way in which I give myself and the hours I give myself to the work of the church that makes me acceptable to God? Or have we realised that none of us deserve what God actually offers? And his gifts are all gifts of grace, the free, unmerited kindness of a loving God. Are we grateful for his generosity offered to us, whoever we are, however we come, as long as we come humbly and we come yearning and open to his gifts that we might use for his glory, not for our pride? That's a question that continues to be a question, not only as we come to Christ, but when we've come and after we've started to serve him. <coughs> that law of reversal of <coughs> turning to Christ and thanking him that the last shall be first and the first will be last is at the heart of being a, a follower of our Lord Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this strange parable, so different from our Western ways of thinking. We ask that you'd help us to think and think clearly about what we deserve and what we have been given, about how much we owe and how much you have done to satisfy that debt. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your generosity. We thank you for your love, not only shown to draw us to yourself in the first instance, but to support us, to uphold us, to build us up and to keep us as your servants going on following you. We bring you our love and our thanksgiving tonight with all our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.